Thank you, Jim. Always love to hear Jim pray. I love the honesty of children. Aren't they great? Except when they're talking about us. My children were the best, or in some sense the worst, in their honesty. Oh boy, I've got stories galore, but I'll just give you, you know, seven or eight. Now, just a, just, just a couple anecdotes about uh, my precious children and their honesty. One time I was coloring with our daughter Sarah, and we were coloring out of some, you know, landscape or something. And she was at the age where, you know, it was just sort of a, you know, various colors and, and, you know, one green line. That's all the green grass, that type of thing. So I was doing it, too. You know, I think it's not a terribly high standards here, but here I was, you know, drawing, and I couldn't find a, a, a color for the sun other than red. So I did a red circle and did the little rays coming out, and she said, Dad, no, no. The sun's not supposed to be red. The sun's supposed to be yellow, like your teeth. Hmm, <laughs> okay, thank you very much. Just matter of fact, you know, it wasn't trying to be funny, it's just honest. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Well, I remember another time we were at this uh, speaker, we, the church had some, you know, health uh, guru come in to talk to us about fitness. You know, one of those things that's encouraging. And so he's up there and he's saying this and that, and once again, I think this was our other daughter, Katie, she was coloring away in her coloring book, I'm thinking she's not listening. But the speaker's speaking, and he says stuff like, you know, it's best not to skip breakfast, you know, keep the body's metabolism going all throughout the day, most important day, and he keeps droning on, and Katie leans over, and she says, Daddy, you skip breakfast. <laughs> A little later, the speaker says, you know, wouldn't it be nice to wear the pants that don't fit you anymore? And she, le <laughs> she leans over, and she says, Daddy, your pants don't fit you anymore. <laughs> and we are done with this, you know, health stuff, this whole honesty thing. We've got to teach our kids how to lie. We call it, <clears throat> we call it discretion now. It's kind of like the... The, the special dispensation that God gives all of us husbands when the wives ask, does this make me look fat? <laughs> Lie. <laughs> Lie with that. <clears throat> or find a way just to all of a sudden change the subject. Well, no, of course it doesn't make her look fat. Um, from the back seat, many times I've heard a little voice as I'm driving along from the back seat, I'll hear, Daddy, that was against the law. <clears throat> There's nothing like having your personal Holy Spirit to guide you. Well, all of that is a simple introduction to the book of Jude. How in the world is that an introduction to the book of Jude? Because when we look at the book of Jude, we feel the same way. Jude is long on honesty and short on tact. He has not yet learned discretion. Well, from our perspective, Jude tells it like it is. Turn with me to this 
book of Jude, second to last book in the Bible, and therefore, second to last book in our series on a single message from each of the 66 books of the Bible. I can't wait for in a couple weeks when we get to the book of Revelation just to say we're done with this. We'll like bring out confetti and paper flags or something to celebrate. The book of Jude. The um, Jude, of course, as uh, Rome taught us, what, last month, is uh, for a couple of weeks he was in Jude and he used it sort of as a springboard to talk about contending for the faith which is a fantastic um, thing to emphasize because this is Jude's emphasis. Jude, of course, is the baby brother of one of the baby brothers of our Lord Jesus, grew up in the home of a carpenter. Jude was most likely a carpenter, as was Jesus, as was uh, Jude's brother James. And both Jude and James, by God's providence, have letters in the New Testament, which is pretty a marvelous privilege when you think about it. Not enough to grow up with the Son of God as your older brother, but uh, he sovereignly also allows you to contribute to the eternal Word of God. And Jude, Jude is probably called Jude because it's better than saying Judas, which is his real name. In Hebrew, it's Judah. So all the the Judases in the New Testament are really Judas. In Hebrew, Greek, it's, it's written Judas. And here for Jude, we call him Jude rather than Judas because, well, not going to have a book of Judas in the Bible. So we call it Jude. But his real name is Judas. And um, he writes this letter with the emphasis on contending for the faith. Look at verse 1. We're going to work our way through much of this book. Uh, There's only a few verses we'll skip just to save a little time. But uh, verse 1, let's look at that together. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, and brother of James, to those who are the called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints." For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Twice, Jude refers to his older brother as our Lord. Uh, He refers to him as our Lord, or as Jesus Christ, meaning Jesus the Messiah. This is what Christ means. So he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus the Messiah and brother of James. He doesn't say, I'm brother of, you know, the, the Lord Jesus Christ who is the Messiah, but humbly he says he's a servant of Christ, Jesus Christ, and brother of James. And he wants to write them. He said that he he was making every effort, verse 3, to write about our common salvation. He wanted to expand somehow uh, on our salvation, to give some kind of insight into that. But he says he felt the need, and of course we know that he was inspired by the Spirit of God, not to focus on salvation, but rather to focus on the essential importance of contending earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. 
contending earnestly. Uh, he says, first of all, that he wants to struggle or he wants to contend earnestly. The word contend means to give intense effort on behalf of something, to struggle for it. And the basic uh, idea is like a contender. If you think of a boxer or a wrestler, it's really more of a wrestling match. It was used, the word was used in the sense of wrestling. He, he challenges them to wrestle or contend earnestly for, we're told, the faith. Not just faith, but the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. This phrase or this, this group of words, the faith, isn't referring to, you know, contending for, you know, believing. It doesn't mean faith in the sense of the verb to believe, but faith in the sense of the noun, the faith, particularly the, the body of truth that was, to use his own words, was once for all handed down to the saints. In other words, the fulfillment of everything that we've looked forward to has been once for all delivered the faith, the, the body of truth, and what we know as the scriptures or the word of God is delivered. And he says it's delivered once for all, meaning it's done. There's nothing else that we're going to, to add to this. Now, of course, we know the book of Revelation comes after this, but Jude has in mind the, the, the doctrine that has been delivered once for all is here, and we need to wrestle for it on on its behalf. It's in its final form. Uh, The Apostle Paul said a similar thing as far back as his first missionary journey. When he wrote in the book of Galatians, he said that if even an angel from heaven preaches another gospel, let him be cursed. In other words, it's not going to change. It's been delivered once for all. It's in its final form. And then each of the New Testament writers expresses it as the Holy Spirit wants it to be expressed. But the final form of, of our hope, our faith, is delivered once for all. Um, also in Second John, we saw this several weeks back, where John says, anyone who goes too far and doesn't abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So, in other words, if there's any other so-called scripture or any other truth that's added to the word of God that contradicts the word of God, we know that this is not from God. Why in the world do we need to contend for the faith or contend for the doctrine or the scriptures? Because, he tells us, verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. I was raised in San Antonio and uh, been to the Alamo I don't know how many more times than Davy Crockett's been there. But um, one of the things I thought was so fascinating about the Alamo story, the saga, is that uh, one of the last, on one of, in one of the last skirmishes, really the last battle, when the Mexican army finally penetrated the walls and were now inside the walls of the Alamo, the cannons were no longer firing outside. They turned the cannons around and started firing inside. And this is, in a sense, what Jude is doing. He turns the cannons around and is now firing inside the church because there are some persons that have crept in unnoticed, and now they are mingling with the Christians in some sense, indistinct from the Christians, and they are sharing doctrine that is absolutely opposite of what is the truth, or as he mentions, as the faith. And he says that these individuals are uh, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God 
into licentiousness. So there's one problem. And the second problem is they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The New International Version says that uh, they call, calls licentiousness, quote, a license for immorality, which is probably a better translation. Licentiousness is not a word we use much uh, at all. And so we have to kind of look that up. But the idea there is that the grace of God a clear understanding of the grace of God is that God has paid for your sins. Jesus' death on the cross has paid for our sins. There is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. Great! If there's nothing I can do to lose my salvation, then let's see how far we can push it. Let's let the grace of God become a license for me to do whatever I want. And Judas saying, look, correct understanding of grace, bad application of grace. They turn the grace of God into a license for sin, a license to do whatever they want, and this is bad teaching. This is bad teaching. This is why the cannon is turned around and is firing inside. Um, and, you know, it, it's one thing to point to these individuals who have crept in unnoticed, but this is written here to give us instruction as well because we struggle against this as well. We know in our heart of hearts, those of us who love grace, that we can like, get away with it. We can do whatever we want and get away with it. We can keep it secret, and nobody knows but us and the God of grace who will forgive me. And Jude is saying, look, this is not how we live. This is not how we should live. This is how the ungodly people teach. And so when we are aware of this in our own lives, we need, to, um, we need to change it. We need to repent from this. I love when we go down the street and they've got those speeding monitors. You know those speeding monitors? Don't you just love those things? The big billboards that basically give a real-time uh, you know, speed limit of what you're doing. And, you know, you see the person in front of you, you know, they, they go by and you see them hit their brake lights because you realize that they're going too fast. And then you see their speed decrease on the monitor. And next to the monitor, it not only shows the speed you're going, but the speed you should be going, like it's 35 or some ridiculously slow, you know, <laughs> amount. Who goes 35 except to accelerate up to 45? So the, um, but I, I, I hate those things because they show you what's going on in the privacy of your own dashboard. <laughs> Nobody knows how fast you're going until those things show everybody. And it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? You're driving along, and, and sometimes they even have these sophisticated boards that not only show you the, the, uh, the speed you're going, but it'll start flashing at you if you're going too fast. So it'll get everybody's attention that you are breaking the law. I thought, well, you know, it's one thing to get you to sort of slow down. And it works, too, by the way, doesn't it? You slow down. In fact, my goal is to always get it just a little under right before I go past the sign, and then I can speed back up. <laughs> but you get just, just under to see the correct speed. I'm so glad that that is only true of driving. Wouldn't you hate it if you walked into class and we had a big <laughs> thing up here that showed you the condition of your heart. If you walked in and all of a sudden it started flashing, arrogant, <laughs> coveting, wouldn't that be horrible? I mean, how do you tap the brakes on that? You know, all of a sudden, 
it, it stops coveting, and now it says, grateful, <laughs> prayerful, humble. As soon as it says humble, though, all of a sudden it would change back again to arrogant, because <laughs> how can everyone know you're humble? See, that's me. I'm humble. The grace of God works on the honesty system, doesn't it? It works on the, uh, what do you call that system? Honor. honor system. Right. It works on the honor system. God knows. And God challenges us, yes, I will forgive you of whatever you do. But let your motivation not be that it's going to be plastered large for everyone to see. Your motivation to obey, my motivation to obey is not embarrassment, but gratitude. We respond to God's grace and we obey out of gratitude. So the first thing they do, Jude says, is they turn the the grace of God into a license for sin. The second thing they do is they deny their only master and Lord, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah. Now, how they deny Christ, we don't know. Jude doesn't say. Perhaps they denied Christ uh, as John mentions in his epistles that we just got finished with. They, they denied that Jesus came in the flesh. In other words, that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. Who knows what, uh, what Jude was saying. But whatever it is, they were denying the master who bought them. But we do know this. Uh, they're denying Jesus, and in whatever way they were denying him, uh, it was obvious to them, though, though we don't know what it is. Paul also wrote to Titus about people who claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. So again, it's easy to point the cannon somewhere else, but Jude's pointing the cannon inside, not only at them, but for us to examine ourselves. <clears throat> do we claim to know Jesus Christ? We do. Do we match that in our lives? Sometimes we do. So what's the destiny of these individuals? Now, Jude just, here's where all of a sudden you know, the gloves come off and Jude begins to let them have it. Verses 5 all the way down through 16. He just unloads the cannon. And we'll make our way fairly quickly through these verses and uh, only skipping a few of them here just for time's sake. But let's begin here in verse uh, 5. He says, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, see, once again, there's that faith delivered once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And then he gives several examples. Well, he has already given one, verse 5, of those who came out of Egypt who didn't believe. Then verse 6, he he mentions angels who don't believe, probably the fallen angels. Verse 7, he refers to Sodom and Gomorrah. These each of these examples, the, the, those who came out of Egypt, the angels, and those of Sodom and Gomorrah are all notable rebels against God. And, he, and Jude describes their destiny. And now, in some sense, he describes their, uh, you might say, their delusion. Look at verse 8. He says, Yet in the same way, these men, also by dreaming, defile the flesh, reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. But Michael, the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, 
and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these they are destroyed. So Jude is saying, in spite of the way God clearly has dealt with unbelievers in history, these guys are doing exactly what they want anyway. They reject authority. They live in sexual immorality. They have the gall to attack angels with abusive language, probably referring to fallen angels, as it's mentioned here, because they were mentioned in the earlier context. But then Jude tells us something that we don't know anywhere else in the Scripture, that the, the archangel Michael... The archangel. What's an archangel? It's not an angel that came out of the ark. An archangel is the highest of all angels. Michael is the top angel. And we're told that the top angel disputed with Satan over the body of Moses, disputed with the devil, and argued about the body of Moses. So after Moses died, um, Exodus tells us we don't know where he's buried, that the Lord took care of that, but what we weren't told is that there was this dispute between the archangel Michael and the devil about the body of Moses. We don't hear that anywhere else except here. But the point is not that there was an argument. The point is that even in the argument, the archangel Michael did not rebuke Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Point being, these ungodly men Jude refers to, they have no qualms about rebuking demons but, he, but Jude says, not even the archangel Michael did that. But these guys, they have no qualms about doing that. They are arrogant. They are taking a role that is not theirs to take. They live by instinct like animals. Verse 11, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and, they, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts. Now let's pause there for a second. What in the world is a love feast? Sounds like something out of the 60s, doesn't it? Love feast. It's not, it's not something like that. A love feast is sort of like um, what would happen after the communion, when they would have communion or the Lord's Supper and their gathering, they would have what we might call a potluck. This, this was the way that they had fellowship with one another. And Jude says that these individuals are hidden reefs in your uh, love feast, or if you've got a a marginal reading, hidden stains. Again, they're they're sneaking in to your fellowships. They come to your koinonia groups, you know, where no no, no one really knows who's the good and who's the bad. They sneak in. It says, and when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, in the seventh generation from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment upon all, and to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Jude, again, boy, letting them have it. I mean, this this is like a child telling you your teeth are yellow. There is honesty in Jude's words, and Jude is saying these individuals are sneaking into your fellowships, and what what picturesque metaphors Jude uses here. 
They're hidden reefs. They are clouds without water. They're carried along by winds. Over and over he goes and uses various metaphors to describe the character qualities of these people. Now, um, Jude quotes Enoch here, and uh, some have uh, uh, noted that this actually is sort of a paraphrase or sort of a soft quote from the book of Enoch in the Apocrypha. And some have struggle with this thinking, well, so is, is the book of Enoch scripture? Because here we've got Jude quoting it. But just because Jude is quoting Enoch uh, doesn't mean that he's necessarily saying it's scripture. The Apostle Paul quoted pagan poets. You know, it doesn't mean necessarily these pagan poets are scripture. But all truth is God's truth, and if this particular quote lined up with what um, Jude wanted to say, then Jude's going to use it to, uh, to give emphasis to his point. Plus, you could simply just be quoting Enoch. I mean, again, this is the Spirit of God telling us such stuff from the Old Testament that we didn't know before. We didn't know about the argument between Michael and the devil about the body of Moses. We didn't know about this quote from Enoch uh, in the Old Testament. So we may just be told simply what we didn't know before. But the point is simply this, that these men um, are sneaking in and they are hidden but be aware of them. Be aware of them and be wary of them. He says they are, look at verse 16, and here is where <laughs> uh, you've got to sidestep the cannon that's now turned on the enemy to make sure that it doesn't hit you. Verse 16, these are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Ouch! Grumblers, finding fault, speaking arrogantly, following after lusts, flattering people for the sake of our own advantage. Heck, that's the marathon class, isn't it? (laughs) I'm glad you laughed. Well, it's the teacher of the marathon class, that's for sure. This is us. We grumble, we find fault, we follow our lusts, we speak arrogantly, we flatter people for the sake of gaining an advantage. These are the things that we struggle with in our lives as well. I saw a cartoon one time that showed a man having coffee with his pastor. And the little bubble, there's like one bubble above them as they're sitting at this table across from a cup of coffee. And this man says to his pastor, quote, all I'm trying to say is that certain people might think that 12.15 is a little late to be getting out of church, that the pastor doesn't need four weeks of vacation, that your office is offensive, that a guy my age doesn't need a guy your age telling me how to raise my kids, and that if it weren't for your crazy third world projects, we could have repaved our parking lot by now. I'm not saying those are my opinions, of course. I just thought you should know what others might be thinking. <laughs> oh, yeah, those are so helpful comments. It's easy to read the description of these ungodly men and go, yeah, Jude, you are so right. Get them. You let them know exactly what God is thinking until we realize this is us. This is us. We struggle with these same things. And all of Jude's readers You know, they might not be struggling with the verses prior to verse 16, but all of a sudden verse 16 is almost like, wow, God doesn't like that? I do that. Or at least I struggle with that. 
I struggle against grumbling. In fact, I, obviously I've had this on my mind this week as I've been thinking about this lesson today. On the way to church this morning, Kathy and I were talking about this and that. I forget what it was, but I, really, I literally forget what it was, except I remembered that I said something. And I thought, you know what? I just grumbled. <laughs> it's so natural to do it. And here an hour and a half later, I'm talking about how God doesn't like grumbling. And that's exactly what I did. And uh, I don't know, you could think about your conversations on the way to church, or maybe that's too hard. Just think about your conversations on the way home from church. That'll probably be right along with it as well. This is us. This is us. And as a result, we need to, we need to be very humble as we look at this passage rather than uh, arms crossed, hands on hips, looking down. We need to also look within. Which is why I think Jude turns the page now, or turns in verse 17, to believers. Look at verse 17. He says, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit, But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. I don't know if you noticed, but he says it twice, but you, beloved. He says it twice in those verses we read. Verse 17 and verse 20. Both start off the exact same way. And in both instances, in the original language, in the Greek, the word you is emphasized. But you, you, it doesn't have to be there, but when you put it there, it is emphasized. And it's very strong in the original language. You, beloved, are to be different. You should be different. I've been talking about them, 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 and now he says, but you, Christians, should be different. You should first of all, he says two things. First of all, remember the words of the apostles. Remember the words of the apostles. Keep your finger here in Jude and turn back a few books and look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter 3. Some people have noted how similar 2 Peter and the book of Jude are. So much so that they kind of wonder if one borrowed from the other, which would be perfectly fine if they did, just reiterating some good truth. But we see very similar things said here. We won't look at chapter 2, but you may remember when we went through 2 Peter, all of chapter 2, Peter is basically saying a very similar thing. Cling to the Word of God because you're going to have false teachers come in that's going to teach you stuff that's not the Word of God. And then verse chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Peter's saying the same thing. Turn back to Jude and you'll see the exact same idea. He says you need to remember the, uh, the words of 
the apostles. Verse 17, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the same reason, because we've got false teachers. We've got people who are not going to remember the words of the apostles. And of course, when Peter and Jude both talk about remembering the words of the apostles, he's basically saying, remember the Bible. Remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the prophets. That's the Old Testament. Remember the words that were spoken by your holy apostles. That's the New Testament. Remember the scriptures, Old and New Testament. And Jude would basically say, contend for the faith. The idea is remember the faith which was once for all delivered to you. The Bible that you have in your lap is God's final word on the matter. There's nothing added to it. There's no need to add anything to it. It's the final word. As Jude says, it's been handed down once for all. And Jude tells us here, first of all, remember. Remember these truths. So here's the first principle that it's taken us a while to get to. And it's simply this. Contending for the faith includes guarding our personal walk with God. Contending for the faith includes guarding our personal walk with God. In fact, that's where it begins. We've got really no authority, no moral authority to stand and contend for the faith publicly if we are not contending for the faith privately in our own lives. And I'm not just pulling this out of the air. This is what Jude says. Notice he says here in verse 20, building yourselves up on your, on your most holy faith. And look at this, praying. Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So contending for the faith includes guarding our personal walk with God. We need to know the word of God so we can guard against error. Absolutely. But part of that error is the error that can slip into our own hearts. He's not just talking about doctrine. He's talking about devotion. He's not just talking about truth. He's talking about transformation. He's talking about life change. He's not just talking about, you know, a doctrinal statement that we plaster on our website or we put on our dashboard. He's talking about the transformation in our own hearts. The apostolic teaching is not just doctrine, it's devotion. So contending for the faith includes guarding our personal walk with God. Verse 17, he says, but you. Remember the scriptures? And then there's a second in verse 20. He says again, but you. Same construction, emphasized. Look at verse 20 again. Let's read that again. He says, but you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously. Now, the New American Standard, which is the translation I'm reading, does a good job translating the verbs and the participles as it was originally written. I don't know if that's sort of foggy to you, but, but the main verb or the uh, imperative is keep yourself. That's, that's the thing that Jude is saying. Now, how do you do that is what the participles or all the ing um, words tell us how to do. Keep yourselves in the love of God. How do we do that? Building yourselves up, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we keep ourselves in the love of God. That doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. That means we keep our minds in the frame, in the framework of God's love, of God's truth. That we keep ourselves there where it needs to be. How do we do that? How do we 
stay in that, that, that healthy place in the spiritual life, he gives us three ways to do it. He says, uh, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. And because he refers to this faith, your most holy faith, he's probably talking about the faith that he mentioned earlier. In fact, the faith that he just mentioned with regard to remembering the, uh, the words written by our apostles. So we're probably talking about Scripture. And remember also at the beginning where he talked about contending earnestly for the faith. And there he almost certainly is referring to Scripture or the content of our faith. So here when he says building yourselves up on your most holy faith is the idea of continually exposing yourself to truth. That's first. Second, praying in the Holy Spirit. So time in the Word, time in prayer. And then finally, in verse 21, waiting anxiously. This is that, 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 um, that hope that we have, a mindset that constantly looks forward to the coming of Christ. I think many days, I want to say every day, but many days, I think, you know, today could be the day that Christ comes. And you know what? It could be. It really could be today. Now, there's been many times that I've thought, Lord, I would love if it would be today. I mean, there's some days just like, Lord, this is the perfect day for the rapture. And usually it's about April 14th. (laughs) This would be a great day for the rapture. But seriously, we have the mindset of we're waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord. We're waiting anxiously for it. We're eager for it. We are longing for that time when we're going to be with Christ. So how do we keep ourselves in the love of God, or how do we, first of all, contend for the faith in our personal walk with God? By building ourselves up in our most holy faith, probably a reference to being in the Word of God on a regular basis, by praying in the Holy Spirit, by praying, and and finally, by waiting anxiously. That is, we have this eager expectation that Christ is coming. C.S. Lewis, in his book called The Four Loves, wrote this. He said, All human beings pass away. Do not let your happiness depend on something you may lose. If love is to be a blessing, not a misery, it must be for the only beloved who will never pass away. The thought he's saying is basically, look, we want to love something. We want to love what's eternal, not what's in the world. The love, the love of the world and everything in the world is passing away, but our God never passes away. Our personal walks with God should spill over not only into our lives, but now, he says, into the lives of others. Look at verse 22. He says, and, and have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some, have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Of course, we know that the interviewer, uh, Larry King, died not long ago. I read somewhere that he did like 1,500 or no, 15,000 interviews in his career, which is amazing. But I remember reading an interview done to him, or he was the one being interviewed, in World Magazine. This was years ago. And uh, King said this, this quote, this uh, statement is um, um, fascinating. He said, I have a lot of respect for true people of faith. I've done so many interviews on it. I've always searched. But as someone said, 
Do you ever sit down and read the Bible cover to cover? The answer is no, because I don't know who wrote it. I'm too in my head to be into faith. Faith's a wonderful thing. I envy people who have it. I just can't make the leap. I remember as a kid, my father died when I was young, and that was unexplainable to me. The God of the Old Testament? I didn't like the things he did. Abraham, sacrifice your son. That always bothered me as a kid. I remember thinking, why would he have Abraham do that? As a test? So I said to myself, I don't know. I just don't know. That is true to this day. I had lunch with a young man not long ago who nursed some really serious doubts about the Bible. Um, and I'll never forget just sitting across the table from him. And I appreciated the fact that he even wanted to get together with me. But we were talking, and he'd say, you know, what about this? And I'd say, well, you know, here's kind of here's what the Bible says about that. Well, what about this? And then we'd go back and forth. He'd say this. He'd raise an objection, I'd, and I'd give some kind of response hopefully from the scriptures or from logic that was supported in the scriptures. And finally, we just sort of started chasing our tails around the table. And I, I said, you know, let me ask you something. If, if I answered, if I were to answer all of your questions to your satisfaction, would you believe? He said, no, I wouldn't. So I said, the problem is not a lack of information. I said, the problem is you've already made up your mind. You see, some people demand evidence for a truth that they never intend to accept. Their problem isn't a lack of truth. It's a suppression of truth. Like Paul says in, in Romans 1 and 2, he says, God has made it perfectly clear in creation and in our own conscience that there is a God and we have violated our conscience. We, we will stand justly condemned before God apart from Jesus Christ because whether our standard, however high our standard is, We've made our standard, and we have all violated our own standard, and therefore we will stand before God condemned. And, and Paul says, and people know this in their hearts. See, Jude says, have mercy on some who are doubting. There are those who are truly seeking, and there are those who are not. Jude is referring to those who are truly seeking, but who are struggling with doubts. That is okay. And in some sense, we are all there. I've got some things that I have questions. I have doubts about some of just the practical nature of the Christian life. Honestly, I do. And I'm not saying I don't believe it. I believe everything in the Word. What I struggle with is, God, how in the world do I make this work? In my life, sometimes it's, it's a challenge, and it is beyond me, which is, and it needs to be beyond us, because that's the whole point of faith. We're never going to get to the point where we go, oh, wow, now I don't have to have faith. Mm -mm. We're always going to have to have faith. And I think, well, I don't think, I think, can I, can I say what I think without, without saying I think? <laughs> I imagine, let me just reword it. That when I get to glory, all the questions that I've got about the Lord, in the first moment that I see Jesus Christ, it's just going to be kind of like, oh, problem solved. The book of Thessalonians, First uh, Thessalonians says that we will marvel when we see God, when we see Christ. We will marvel at him. Marvel. Um, 
you know, Marvel Comics has done their best at creating superheroes, and they have a brand that's made billions of dollars in movies because we love heroes, don't we? We love superheroes. I mean, superheroes, you know, my favorite is Iron Man. I like Iron Man the best. But we love superheroes. We look up to them, and we just, for some reason, it just draws us to watch these superheroes do on screen what we long for somebody to do. Jesus Christ is the ultimate superhero. He is the ultimate Captain Marvel. We will marvel at him. I mean, he can heal. He can create the world by speaking. He can fly. We know that, the ascension. I mean, Jesus is the ultimate superhero. He is the one that we ultimately look forward to. But some people struggle with believing. Jude says, have mercy on some who are doubting. Weren't we that way one time? Didn't we doubt? Here's the second principle. If the first was contending for the faith includes guarding our personal walk with God, the second is simply this. Contending for the faith includes having mercy on those who are struggling. It includes having mercy on those who are struggling. You see, struggling for the faith is not just struggling to defend it, but it's also being part of the process of bringing people along. Jude tells us, have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. What an amazing picture that is. And then on others, he says, again, he says, have mercy. But here he says, have mercy with fear, meaning hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. You're going to get involved with people's lives that are polluted, that are dirty. And by that, I don't mean that we judge them. I mean that they're so involved in sin And he says, have mercy with fear. In other words, have mercy in their lives, but be careful. Be careful. Don't be drawn to it. Hate even the garment stained or polluted by the flesh. Don't let it draw you. Continue to hate it, to hate the sin, but to love the sinner. Have mercy on those who are struggling. This presupposes we're involved in the lives of other people. That it's not just, you know, us and Jesus walking along until Jesus comes, but that we are involved in the lives of others who are struggling. Henry Drummond said, we are born questioners. Look at the wonderment of a little child in its eyes before it can speak. The child's great word when it begins to speak is, why? That's the incipient doubt in the nature of man. Respect doubt for its origin. It is an inevitable thing. It is not a thing to be crushed. That is a great statement. It is not a thing to be crushed. It is part of man as God made him. Doubt is the prelude of knowledge. So true. Remember doubting Thomas? What did Thomas say? Unless I believe, or unless I see, I will not believe. Poor Thomas. He's the only one. He gets the bad rap being the doubting Thomas. But we don't give him credit for when Jesus did show up. What did Thomas say? My Lord and my God. What other disciple said that? (laughs) Thomas's doubt was a prelude to a deeper faith once Jesus brought him along. Notice, whenever Jesus deals with the doubts of his disciples, he doesn't crush them. When uh, Matthew refers to the, uh, in chapter 12, he, he refers to Jesus, and he quotes Isaiah's prophecy of Christ, and he says this of Jesus, A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick, he won't put out. This is our Savior. This is the one who could crush our doubts. Instead, he brings us along. 
He uses doubt as a catalyst for a deeper faith. Doubt is sort of the, the, the dark side to curiosity. So if you've got somebody in your life that's doubting Christianity, or even you, if we can be honest, if you've got parts of your faith that you're doubting, that is a rare earth magnet of God drawing you to truth. Pursue it. Chase that. Don't, don't let Satan make you think, well, you got doubts, you're not a believer. No. We're told at the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus is about to give the Great Commission, and some saw the resurrected Christ, and it says, but some were doubtful. It's there. Read it, Matthew 28. Jesus brought them along. He brought them along, and he's bringing us along. And Jude says we need to do that in the lives of others. Well, Jude ends with this wonderful doxology, verse 24 and 25. So rather than just read it, let's read it and let it be sort of the, the beginning of our closing prayer. So let me just invite you, if you want to read along with me, you can. I mean, just read it silently while I read it aloud. Or I also invite you to just close your eyes and let me read it to you because we'll pray right afterwards. Jude writes, verse 24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be mercy, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. What you inspired Jude to write here, Lord, in these last two verses are some of the most beautiful words written from an individual who at one time did not believe that his older brother was the Messiah. Until after the resurrection, Jude's eyes were opened and then he became this marvelous defender of the faith, one who contended for the faith, and not only that, one whose life was transformed by the resurrected Christ, just like us. Thank you for this wonderful affirmation of the security of our salvation, that, Lord, you are able to keep us from stumbling. You are able to make us stand in the presence of your glory, blameless with great joy. And this, this happens only through our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for Jude's commitment to write what he was led by the Spirit of God to write as opposed to what he was interested in writing. He wanted to write about our salvation, but instead he writes us this wonderful brief letter challenging us to contend for the faith. And that struggling begins with our own personal walk with you. Help us, Lord, to devote ourselves to time in the Scripture, to time in prayer, and to an eager anticipation of the coming of our Lord. And may it not just be us, but may, may our lives spill over into the lives of others, especially those who are struggling with doubt, those who are doubting, and those who desperately need someone to come along and to, and to give a message of grace, a patient message, just like the Lord Jesus, who didn't crush others' doubts, but brought them along and ultimately used them to deepen their faith, just like you've done with us. Father, thanks for this time together today as we look in Jude's words to remind us to give careful attention to our personal walks and to also look outside ourselves into the lives of others. Strengthen us as we do that and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.